and welcome to the show. I'm Jackie Mitchell. This is where we pick the best brains in the business world and you, the listener, feel like you are eavesdropping on a really interesting coffee conversation to give you and your business the inside edge. We take a look into the business mindsets of leaders and brands and probe into how they think, feel, learn, manage teams and themselves. We love sharing the knowledge and serve brain food to keep your business mind healthy. To continue the conversation, you can connect with me on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. So while our first guest settles in, orders their coffee, grab yourself one. Our next guest is a sought-after speaker, author and award-winning coach. She has helped thousands of senior leaders and their teams learn to show up as the best version of themselves. I love that. To build their confidence and influence others. I'd like to give a very warm welcome to the show, Michelle Sales. Hi, Jackie. Hello. Great to have you here. Now, this is a topic that I'm really fascinated about and I think it's a really key one. Uh, particularly in this digital age that there has been such a focus on the importance of communication and relationships. Uh, and in, uh, and you talk about bouts of insecurity, that we've all had bouts of insecurity in the work environment. So how can we best deal with these moments when we're having those moments or imposter syndrome is another popular topic of that. So how can we best deal with those moments? Yeah, it's really important and confidence is so critical to us all and no matter what we're doing. The best thing I love about confidence, Jackie, is that it's not something that you're either born with or not. So it's very much a learnable skill and that's just, I reckon, so empowering about confidence. Mm, Uh, But, you know, it does wax and wane for all of us and so, you know, we can sometimes feel like we're on a bit of a roller coaster ride. Um, So really having an awareness of when we are at our best and what is contributing to that, what's giving us confidence, because it is different for all of us. But the starting point is really having a good sense of awareness about when our confidence is higher or when when is it lower and we need to boost it. Yeah, so if we're in a meeting or we're, we're pitching for business or there's some sort of business interaction and we can sort of ha- have that awareness and then sense that lack of confidence is starting to overwhelm your performance... Are there any tips or tricks that, that we can use, any sort of uh, mental sayings or self-talk that would help us? Yeah, I like how you say self-talk because I think that's one of the really key aspects of it because we have, uh, on average, 65,000 thoughts a day, which is massive. And if, that, if our self-talk is negative or critical, too critical, or, or we're spending time time comparing ourselves to other people and always finding us lacking, then we can go spiral downwards quite quickly. So catching ourselves, being really aware of that self-talk, reframing and reframing to what we're good at. So rather than trying to work on improving all the things that we don't do so well, really just thinking about what are my strengths? What do I know that I do well? What gives us? What gives me energy? And then doing that. So, you know, if it's in the middle of a meeting, for example, um, think about how do I contribute in this meeting? What do I know? How can I do that? Think about your language so that you're not apologising and saying sorry before you even start speaking. 
um, all of those things are really important. I think that's a really good tip to not say sorry or draw attention to your weaknesses. Uh, you know, really focusing on what's strong, not what's wrong with you, I think is is a really key bit. And I, I like this, this sort of self-awareness of your thoughts. So it's like you become a thought detective and monitoring your own thoughts and then having... I suppose, a script or some inspiration in place, that self-talk to talk yourself out of it. Is that sort of where you're coming from? Yeah, absolutely. I love it. Okay. Oh, yes, I can, I can tell. I love it too. Now, <laughs> I, the thing is I, I, I spend a lot of time with women in business and, uh, and I often get a lot of people chatting to me, particularly business um, women networking groups and leaders saying that for their business women, confidence always comes up as their biggest challenge. Have you noticed any gender-related uh, issues with that from, from a confidence perspective? I have, and I run um, a number of women's leadership programs and obviously, the same as you, network with lots of women. So I think it's... uh, So the short answer is yes, I do notice it. Mm. I think there's a whole load of reasons for that. You know, stereotypes, the role that um, women feel that we've had to play at work over many years, particularly women who work in very male-dominated environments and, you know, for just about their whole career they've looked up and haven't had female role models, uh, have thought this is what it's for me to be successful here and therefore perhaps have to show up in a way that's not really being true to themselves Mm -hmm. and then every message they get kind of, you know, they're, they're comparing themselves to that and finding themselves lacking. So confidence. I notice with women, particularly women in senior roles, kind of is chipped away at over many years. So how do we turn that around? How can we actually, I suppose, promote or instill a bit more confidence in in business women? Um, So understanding who you are and being true to that. So the real confidence you talked about at the beginning, the real is actually being really genuine and authentic about, you know, who you are, what do you value, what's important to you in life. Um, If it's about speaking up for women, sometimes um, what I notice with women more than men is um, we hide our voice or are quieter in different forums uh, because we are trying to avoid conflict or we have a fear of being judged. Mm. Um, so being able to experiment with finding your voice in different situations and having people that support you and can offer you good feedback, all of those things really help, as well as having finding some really good role models that we can look up to. I love that um, Madeleine Albright quote, you can't be what you can't see, and that's really mm. for women. You know, if we, if, we can't, if we don't have good role models that we can see that, this is what it's going to take to be more confident or to speak up or to stand up for yourself, then that's hard. Yeah, well, um, our, our brain as humans, we're wonderful pattern matches and we're looking for patterns. And so we, we need those role models. We need to be taught this is how you do it, but also from people that 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 you can relate to. So as much as Oprah is wonderful uh, and a great role model, Hillary Clinton, uh, and there's some great ones, uh, you know, plenty around the world, plenty of women around the world, sometimes they can feel a little bit out of reach. So it's nice to actually look at someone and go, you know what, I can relate to them and they can do it. So maybe I'll, I might give it a go. Is that your experience? Have you noticed that? 
absolutely the relatable. And I love that where you started in this program, Human to Human, um, because it, it is absolutely rela- relatable, able to connect to, um, able to kind of not not see the things that you have to do to boost your confidence, even as being out of reach. In fact, I talk about uh, boosting or building confidence like building muscles. And we don't go to the gym and just start lifting 80 kilo hoops when we go to the gym, or I don't anyway. Uh, we, we actually start with smaller weights and we build up to it. And confidence is the same. We don't have to jump so far outside of our comfort zone to build confidence. The smaller... Um, more actions that we take every day to boost confidence is actually much more sustainable for us and that includes having role models that we can feel like we can connect to and see what those small actions are. Yeah, and I think I think confidence has got a, a bad brand image if I was to go down that path. I think when you start saying, you know, you need to build your confidence, you need to be more confident. A lot of people then think, oh, but that sounds like I love myself or I'm promoting myself too heavily. And, of course, we all know in Australian culture this tall poppy syndrome. And I've seen a lot of uh, business people, men and women, learn a lot of stuff from the US, of course, that they're a leader in so many fields in business. And then they bring that format or the concept back into Australia and try to repackage it, but it doesn't work because it's sort of selling, not telling, I suppose, in a way, and it's too hard for our culture. So what what can we do to overcome that fear of tall poppy, I suppose? Yeah, and I, I think I really like what you say, and I think the other thing that I also think is in line with that is the fake it till you make it. I think, you know, sometimes we have to do that in the moment, but it only gets us so far for so long and it can be exhausting if we're faking it. And so there's that element and then there's the overdone confidence that we feel. Like, in, you know, us Aussies, you know, we kind of can see through that pretty quickly. So if you're not being genuine and authentic about your, yourself and how we show up, then, you know, we see through that. So I think that having that starting point, like I said, of understanding who we are, who we really are, what we value and what we're about and what's important to us and then building the confidence to, you know, through understanding our strengths and our self-talk, all of those things that we've talked about. When we use that as the starting point and build the confidence from the inside out rather than looking at, okay, this is either a program, this is what I've been taught, this is um, a role model that perhaps is unattainable, perhaps thinking if I just behave like that, then that'll be what I need to do. If we really build it from the inside out, then it's much more likely to be genuine and authentic and um, received well by those around us. Yeah, uh, one of my techniques, which doesn't always work, I have to say, uh, but, uh, you know, if someone asks me, can you do this? And and I know what I can and can't do. I'm I'm highly aware of my capabilities most of the time, and and I'll say, yep, I'm I can do that, and I'm really good at it, and I've done it a thousand times before. And this and this is I know this works. But what I do is balance it with, but I can't do this. You know, I'm no good at this. And so I suppose it's just a, that balance of yes, I'm really good at this, but I'm really bad at that. And uh, and I that just sort of balances out the conversation, and, and you know, causes a few people to laugh as well which sort of eases a little bit of that strain (laughs) yeah totally and I think you know saying yes to things is is part of that actually putting yourself out of your comfort zone a little bit 
as well. But what I also um, hear from what you're saying there is being able to be vulnerable about, you know, what we're not so good at and that authenticity and realness in in confidence. Um, When we can bring vulnerability to that, then I think that just makes it all all the more real. Yeah, and that, uh, you know, uh, making fun of yourself. I always say I make fun of myself before I give other people a chance to, to, to do that. And that's mm-hmm. that really authentic, uh, relatable human side of it. Now, you've put all these thoughts into a book and I'm holding it in my little hand now, The Power of Real Confidence, Learn How to Lead to Your Full Potential. And I love this. Step up, stand up, speak up, show up. Is this your first book, Michelle? It is my first book. Well, congratulations! It's enormous achievement, Uh, and and I and I had a I've had a I haven't had a good read, but I've had enough a read to get a sense of it, and I love all the the bits in it, and the the bits about confidence. There's some really good practical tips and tricks of what to do, and one of the ones I love was the confidence barometer. Uh, Can you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. It's. Because confidence waxes and wanes for us through our life, it's important that we have practices, I suppose, or disciplines that we're able to just reflect from time to time on where our confidence is at. Because when it's low, we know that we can make limiting choices. You know, we might not say yes to that project or that new job opportunity because we're just thinking that we're not quite ready for it. Um, we might not. We might, you know, try to over-perfect our work because it's not quite right yet. So being able to step back and reflect on where is my confidence at? If it's high, then if I'm feeling really good, then what is it? What are some of the things that's contributed to that? If it's low, then what's going on for me? So rather than, you know, be six months down the track and you've had six months of feeling um, like your confidence is really low and you've been beating yourself up and making limiting choices, being able to catch yourself and assess where you're at and go, okay, what do I need to do about this? And what I liked about it the most was confidence, I think, is talked about. It's almost all or nothing. You're either confident or you're not confident. And I loved the fact that you looked at it like a barometer, that, that, it, that it is fluid, that it can be up and down. And you can have some days, it's like anything, you know, you have some days where you're feeling good, other days you don't feel like you're on your game, whatever it is. But And confidence comes under that. And I love the fact you've said here, confidence is really in a complete level state, no matter how hard we try to sustain our behavioural changes. And I think acknowledging that, accepting that and then coming up with some I suppose using having a toolbox that you can actually then use for days that you're either feeling good or feeling bad. Yeah totally and when before I started writing the book because I didn't actually think I would write a how-to book you know how do you go about um, building confidence but I talked to most of my clients and many people who I've been working with over a long period of time and I really got a very strong sense from them that it's not just what is confidence, what does it mean, why is it important, but actually what do you do about it? Mm. How do you actually build confidence? How do you sustain confidence? How do you do that in an authentic way? So it was the how-to that was missing from a lot of this work. Yeah, no, I think it's, I think it's really good. And it leads into, I just wanted to very quickly 
touch on, I noticed you're currently studying positive psychology at the moment, which is a, a real recent movement. I think it was 1998 or late 90s. Martin Seligman, who I'm a huge fan of, uh, and anyone who's wanting to know a bit more about positive psychology can see Seligman's work and a few other uh, outstanding thought leaders that he's collaborated with. And there's some wonderful uh, information available on positive psychology. Uh, it, what is what led you to go down that path, Michelle? I love, um, yeah, I love his work as well. But I, I really love the overarching philosophy with positive psych around you get much better bang for your buck when you focus on your strengths rather than your weaknesses. Mm. Um, so I loved that. And it was if I can just tell you a little story about uh, me in the writing of the book. So I didn't particularly want, want to write. Uh, English has never been that great. It wasn't my best subject. I didn't you know, love it at school. And uh, I was about a third of the way through the writing and I did a strength profile for myself. I was doing some work with clients and writing came up as a weakness. And I thought, and I struggled, you know, I set Fridays aside for writing and I did Pilates in the morning, then went for a coffee and then I get to the afternoon and think, oh, I don't really want to write. Mm. So it wasn't a surprise. It came up as a weakness, but I had narrator come up as a unrealized strength. And so I just took a totally different approach to the writing of the book where I told stories at the start of each chapter and it really got me into the flow of writing. So, you know, that to me, that's the whole philosophy of positive psychology. Really understand uh, what are your strengths and what are you great at? And if you start with that and leverage that, then we can do the same work but in a much better way. Michelle Sale's book, The Power of Real Confidence, Learn How to Lead to Your Full Potential. It's a great read. Congratulations on your first book. It's a great achievement and very clever the way that you put it together. Now, anyone listening would like to know a bit more about Michelle. She's on Twitter. She's on LinkedIn. She's on Facebook and michellesales.com.au. All easy. Thanks, Jackie. Terrific. Great talking to you. Lovely talking to you. Thank you, Michelle. You're listening to Taking Care of Business right here on Adult PFM. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back to the show. Our next guest is a commercial accountant by profession, but he's now a culture and development coach at Outperform Consulting. He's an author, opinion column, opinion columnist, get that right, at CEO World Magazine. Tony Holmwood, welcome to the show. Hi, Jackie. How are you? Really good. Good to talk with you. Your latest book, Best Behaviour, I was super curious about it because it's all about behaviour now seems to be the, uh, the, the new black in business. Is that uh, your experience? Yeah, I think people are awakening to the fact that, uh, you know, I guess having great leadership and role models within the workplace... Uh, really obviously encourages uh, development and capability. And uh, what I really explore in my book is how behaviours actually determine our learning cycles. And given that they do actually influence our emotions, our, our thoughts in a, in a perpetual cycle, um, they are actually really, really important to, uh, to learning. Yeah, I like the fact that it's focusing on behaviour is some sort of sense of self-awareness and also accountability, not only for leaders but for employees and business owners themselves. Yeah, so, um, 
you know, and especially providing uh, and uh, role modelling, you know, the best behaviours mm. will uh, will encourage people to actually step up and and hopefully uh, engage them and, and be motivated. Yeah. Now, um, in, in your book, you mentioned the rise of social enterprise. What did you mean by that? So, um, well, I really sort of dig deep and go uh, really. Uh, uh, you know, into a lot of detail around uh, those sort of right brain behaviours, and um, I am talking about uh, our social brain, um, and of course, social enterprise is part of that. So, uh, formulating purposeful goals, uh, setting visions which are meaningful and actually uh, benefit the community, will actually encourage people to be uh, more passionate and more uh, purpose-driven in their goals. So uh, the more a company can actually align themselves to the community and and purposeful social objectives, the more they can uh, engage employees and and get them motivated. Yeah, now I did notice, and I was again curious, that you started life as a commercial accountant, and that was your profession. So to move from accountancy into change management, business performance and business transformation and I suppose more behavioural side of it. So you've gone from sort of the the logical, uh, practical numbers side into the emotional side. How did that yeah. happen? What, what, what changed for you to make that transition? Well, I think after – and, you know, being a commercial accountant, I was always involved in budgeting, forecasting, etc. was always uh, future-focused. And I did see the power of, uh, of people in terms of uh, business strategy. You know, if you don't have people, you don't make profit. So, um, and I just see that as, as a natural progression. Um, and first and foremost, you need to be analytical to be predictive. So, um, you know, you really need to satisfy and be confident in, in your left brain, uh, you know, ability to actually be predictive in your right brain, which is more about the future and, and setting visions and strategy around uh, your foundation of knowledge. So when and, when you were studying to be an accountant uh, and then you've led into this behavioural side of business, what were some yeah. of your sh- professional shortcomings and so what did you then have to go and do further uh, study into? Okay. So when... Um, actually, one of the things... Uh, that kind of led me into the accounting profession is that uh, I wasn't a good communicator. And uh, when I actually did join the accounting profession, I did find that uh, there was actually a lot of us who uh, kind of struggled with communication. And uh, I effectively found my tribe and uh, I really did have to actually focus on uh, improving my communication skills. I guess my background was too, is that I was quite a shy person uh, I was diagnosed with social phobia uh, around uh, my early 30s. So um, after obviously learning that, I really sort of confronted uh, my fears around uh, social interaction and connection and really tried to uh, overcome my fears in that regard. Um, you know, that uh, gave me 
a really good insight into sort of behavioural mm. development and and how I can actually improve uh, myself through professional and personal development. And uh, you know, I I then learned to actually apply those skills uh, later in my career when I decided to move into project management and also change management. And uh, actually, the basis of my understanding too was uh, I had worked in IT and uh, done a lot of work with HR um, after I left uh, one of the big software companies. I worked on a startup uh, which was all about uh, HR insourcing, targeting uh, HR development and um, and also uh, processes, et cetera, into small to medium business, uh, obviously for the, the benefit of... Uh, of their development and strategic development, and uh, that was at a time that HR was actually being disrupted. So at that point, uh, I decided to actually write a manuscript which set out the benefits of a, uh, of a HR department uh, in relation to strategic and organisational development, and that uh, provided the basis or the framework, the behavioural framework to my book. Yeah, it's it, it's great backstory because you don't often meet behavioralists now that do come from an accounting background. So I, I love the story and I, I love the journey. And I was also curious, Tony, from that journey and in your book, Best Behaviour, you mention a number of behavioural frameworks. You mentioned Myers-Briggs, which is everyone knows about. Uh, you also mm. mentioned DISC. Is there a particular behavioural profiling tool that you prefer? Actually, what I do prefer is uh, the behavioural intelligence uh, assessment, which is actually promoted by DISC. And uh, within that framework and the assessment, they actually provide a number of uh, tools and, and recommendations on how you can actually improve your behaviour. Uh, uh, what I've found with some of the other assessment tools is that they, they just tell you how it is and that's, that's it. I guess uh, it's a bit up to your own devices to uh, for you to actually understand how you can actually progress. Uh, it gives you a good indication on where you're at at uh, a particular point in time, but um, doesn't provide you with a pathway to grow. So what I do actually represent in my book is all behaviours have a purpose, and the more you can align them purposely um, and around objectives, the easier they are to learn. So we do effectively have left and right brain behaviours. Obviously, your right brain behaviours are more about feelings, intuition and perception. And uh, when you actually learn uh, those behaviours, you're actually better, better able to imagine uh, future possibilities, big picture possibilities. If you're too uh, in your left brain, which is uh, your logical sort of judgments and, and thinking, uh, you will have problems trying to actually uh, formulate a future pathway. Mm. Now, you uh, mentioned also emotional development's key to creating yeah. a responsive, innovative, open culture. I couldn't agree with you more, but I'm curious to know uh, your definition of the differences between EI, being emotional intelligence, and EQ, which is also emotional intelligence. Are they the same thing or is there a difference? Um, I, within my book, represent two types of uh, right brain intelligences, and that's uh, 
emotional intelligence, which is all about critical reasoning and school skills, and uh, also cultural intelligence, which is about environmental uh, or collective intelligence being pretty much uh, as one with your environment, completely secure, and and being able to and being a a master of all behaviours, mm. and really being able to uh, influence and inspire the collective. Um, so EI and CI together would equal EQ. Um, EQ being right brain, IQ being left brain. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's uh, how I would define it. Okay. Now, uh, just to finish off, what is your prediction for the future of business? Uh, well, actually, I've just released a, a, quite a big article in uh, CEO World um, and... You know, social purpose is going to be a big enabler going forward. And I know that uh, the 2018 Deloitte Human Capital Study essentially said that uh, businesses will succeed or fail um, based on their uh, willingness to actually you know, support uh, human capital or, or social enterprise. So I've taken that a little bit further and stated that uh, social purpose and emotional intelligence will define uh, business of the future and uh, supporting communities. And that will basically flip us into the collaboration age, uh, which will transcend all the, all of the ages uh, before us. So, uh, and that will be premised on, on creativity, which uh, is extremely powerful. Yeah, it's good. It's a nice way to finish off. Now, Tony, if anyone listening wants to find out a bit more about you and your ideas, where's the, where's the best place they should go? Okay. Um, they can visit tonyhomwood.com. That's H-O-L-M-W-O-O-D. And uh, also they can purchase my book off that website and obviously... I'm also on LinkedIn. My consulting business is called Outperform, and that's O-U-T-P-E-R-F, number four, M.com, and that provides uh, my cultural and also HR transformation framework for business. Great. Thank you for that. Uh, Tony's new book, Best Behaviour, Empowering Managers and HR Leaders to Coach and Align Employee employee behaviours to supercharge growth. All the very best with your book, Tony. I I did enjoy reading it and congratulations. Oh, well, thank you very much, Jackie, and and thank you very much for the opportunity. Always good to have uh, business brains here on this show. Uh, You're listening to Taking Care of Business. We'll be right back after this. Have you ever wanted to tell hundreds of thousands of people something? Did you know that everyone listens to 15 hours of local radio a week? Want to be heard? RPPFM, your natural sales partner. Call 5975-1234. Everyone of business. And our next guest is the highest performing speaker with the CEO Institute on Customer Experience and Culture. And he joins us today to talk about the client revolution. Welcome, Daryl Hardidge. Thank you, Jackie. How are you? Really good. Good speaking with you. Now, I loved this concept that you talk about, this new measurement of service value. Tell us a bit more about that. Well, most of the things in business are geared towards customer satisfaction. And 
even when you talk to a lot of businesses, they'll say they have a high focus on service excellence. But if you ask them how do they measure that to know they're on track, they'll talk about satisfaction. The challenge with satisfaction is that it's basically just giving people what they expect and what they want. Mm. And you've, in this market, you've got to go beyond just giving people what they're paying for because as a minimum, we should always get what we expect. And that's really what satisfaction is measured against. Yeah, I, I love the story. You tell a story about a billboard. Share that with us. Well, yeah, was, recently I was driving down the freeway and they had, uh, I can't even remember the company, it didn't interest me that much, but it was more the catch line, you'll be 100% satisfied. Mm. And I was, I was saying to my wife, who's reading the billboard, and I said, well, here's my first question, as opposed to what? 80% satisfied? 85 <laughs> So 100% satisfaction guarantee is basically saying, and this is the craziness of it, is basically me saying to you, Jackie, you spend $10,000 with me on a bathroom renovation and I'll guarantee that you'll get what you expect. Yeah, big deal. Big deal, exactly, <laughs> big deal. Yeah, so, and that satisfaction, it's so, it's such a basic low-level expectation. And so I think, you know, we talked about this concept of customer delight, but you talk about customer appreciation. I think that word is so much more emotional and so much more connected with what customers want to feel. Yes. Well, there is a real, just going back quickly to satisfaction. Satisfaction is... It's, it's something that you assess left brain. It's like I got what I wanted, tick the boxes, and it's sort of short-term memory as well because there's so many businesses we transact with. And, and I often say to people, if, you know, if you look at your credit card statement, can you remember everywhere you went? And very few people can, mm. and yet you spend a whole lot of money there because you just had this short-term memory experience. The one thing that we've learned from all the research we've done is that when you go above the standard of 8 out of 10 service experience, which is what satisfaction is, and you deliver that really fabulous 10 out of 10 experience, you then go into this whole new realm of engagement with your customers, and that's where they truly appreciate the effort and the service and the time you've taken, and it's a heart connection, and it goes into long-term memory. So if you think of your own uh, habits, there'll be businesses that you are very, very loyal to, and the ones that we tend to find we're loyal to, it's not about the price. It's In fact, usually we pay more for those businesses. It's because of how we connect with them. How we, They know our names. They remember us. There's a spark in their eyes. There's greeting. You, you actually feel like a friend. And so appreciation in a service culture, and a team culture and service environment, it's knowing exactly how to build those bridges with people. And when you achieve that, it's just extraordinary. The, the loyalty you get, first of all, and the massive amount of referrals you get on the back of that. Yeah, now you mentioned the, your interviews. Now, I know uh, that you've done here, and I, in my notes here, you've completed over 750,000 end-user interviews. How long yes. did that take you to do? That's going over 10 years now. Right. And, and were they all qualitative or quantitative, or how did, what were, the, what were they? Were they one-on-one? Yeah, one well, half, over half a million of them are... Mm. Uh, all phone-based. Right, okay. So, and, and, the, and the others were strategic. They were in other countries, so they were different. But the uh, the key thing is we, we want to talk to people on the phone mm. because then you can dialogue with people and you get to really understand how they... You can hear the, you know, you can hear emotion through the phone. And when you really... For any business out there that's looking to survey the customers and get feedback, please do it on the phone. Don't send people emails because we're all sick of that. 
And emails will and text messages, they'll tell you what people think, but they'll never tell you why they think it. And if you get people on the phone and have a talk to them, you'll be able to understand why they feel the way they feel, whether it's good or bad, and, uh, and then you'll be able to act on it with more accuracy. And you mentioned it was it was a global research project? Or uh, was... For one of our clients, yeah, there's, there's like over 200,000 we've done for them, which is all around the world. And that's that's quite a, uh, an in-depth process where it's back and forth. But the, uh, the the things that I've written about in my book are based upon our. We have our own call team here in Melbourne, and it's based upon our phone-based research in Melbourne, where we we deal with companies that are, you know, the biggest one we do does over a billion in revenue, and we deal all the way down to the SME market. And the um, the key to it is, and it's interesting that out of all the the interviews we've done. The thing that people remember the most is how the team supported them. They, if they if they talk about your products or your services, the number one reason you don't have a heart connection to them. When they talk about friendly and helpful, understanding my needs, helpful and obliging, trust, communication, that's all about your people. And when they're the reasons why they're loyal or they're the reasons why they refer you, you've got a very strong connection to them. Now, a nice segue to cool. it is. It is cool. It's great. I, I thought that was wonderful. I was about to ask you what the insights were, but I didn't need to because you shared that very generously. And it was a nice segue to your book, Daryl, The Client Revolution, uh, Smashing the Loyalty Myth and Having the Edge. But you've also got your number one international bestseller was The Ten Commandments of Client Appreciation. Thou, thou shalt create loyalty, a step-by-step guide to number one, position uh, and they're both really great that you go into much more detail from these end user interviews is that right that you use that as your inspiration as the basis for these books absolutely it's based on all the research we've done uh, the first one is more structural it's based around what companies need to do in their structure mm. and i do a lot of keynotes on this and i had uh, people say to me um, around the team training and so on that you know we need this in a, in a book so hence the uh, the ten commandments are basically the the ten key uh, principles I cover, and the uh, the ten commandments around culture, around people, and at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how good your product is, unless you've got a great team of people, you're not going to have loyalty to it. People are everything. Yeah, that's that's great. Now, with your keynoting, I'm just curious: is there a uh, a particular uh popular theme or trend now that maybe it's shifted so five years ago when you were speaking you might have been speaking about everyone wanted a customer service keynote now it's sort of twisting a bit more towards culture or is there any sort of any th- common threads or trends that you've noticed yeah look a lot of a lot of in marketing now it's all around the cx which is the customer experience or the ux the user experience um the one thing that that i think is it's just another fluffy name sometimes. I'm a big believer that really high-quality service and engagement with customers has, has never gone out of fashion and it never will. And one of the things that's interesting here is a lot of companies, they're, they're, they're saying their challenges are the online situation where people you know, can buy it online, et cetera, et cetera. And it's making it harder and harder to um, to do business. However, we, we have clients that have really nailed their service experience and they're, they're having a boom time and they're not discounting because we will all pay a little bit more for brilliant service. We'll, we want price if we're just getting what we pay for, which is satisfaction. But if you have a heartfelt appreciation for a business, you will pay a little bit more for that. 
And that's where the companies take the time to understand, first of all, what they stand for and what their, what their customers really love them for, and then make sure their team understand that and they have a training process so that they can predictably deliver that. We pretty much won the game. And, and the key thing to this is what, what we always say is you must obsess over your customers, not over your competitors. Yeah. If you obsess over your customers and learn what they want and take the feedback and get out on the floor and speak with people, you'll really get to understand what they're looking for. But so many businesses are more obsessed on their competitors and what they're doing, they're losing focus on their own customers. You know what, Daryl? I would pay more for petrol if I could drive to a petrol station and someone put the petrol in the car for me, like they used to do in the good old days. Yep, <laughs> yep, yep. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, well... <laughs> I could remember that too, so that's just something, doesn't it? There you go, yeah. And, but you know what? I've done my own little, you know, uh, my little research project, and particularly women. There's mm-hmm. every woman, women, I, women I speak to all say the same thing. They would pay extra, and uh, and the, the men, the men mightn't like, you know, mightn't mind the smell of petrol on your fingers, but it does my head in. And particularly yeah. if you're dressed up going somewhere and a bit drops on your shoe or something. So I'm just waiting for that to be disrupted again. But I think I, I'm, I'm hopeful. I don't think I, I should be holding my breath. Anyway, D- Daryl Hardidge, thank you so much for your time today. Your book, The Client Revolution: Smashing the Loyalty Myth and having the edge and of course your number one international bestseller congratulations the 10 commandments of client appreciation i assume it's wherever you can buy books people can access those yes i can uh or they're on amazon which is Usually the easy way yeah, Amazon's the easy. Now, anyone that's been listening to you today, just to remind our listeners, we've been chatting with Daryl Hardidge. And if they want to follow you or come and see you, keynote and wonder what you're up to, what are the best uh, platforms? I'm assuming you're on LinkedIn. Yes, yes, on LinkedIn. And also uh, just, just go to our website, security, S-A-G-U-I-T-Y.com. And uh, we can easily get in touch from there. Fantastic. Thanks so much for your time today, Daryl. That's an absolute pleasure, Jackie. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. You're listening to Taking Care of Business. As I pick the best brains in the business world, we'll take a short break. Right back up. That's the end of another stimulating show. We hope you've enjoyed eavesdropping on our conversation, picked up some tips, learned something new, or at the very least feel inspired. If you just joined us, you've missed a lot, but the podcast will be available on my social media, Jackie Mitchell. Thank you to our worldly and thought-provoking guests. We look forward to your company next Friday. In the meantime, keep taking care of your business mindset.